Episode 15 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I'm a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today's topic is the X meets Y, or the high concept pitch. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this is a, some, this is something that I've, I've often, often got asked about when I was working in publishing. Is it necessary to have a high concept pitch when, when you're querying, when you're on submission, etc.? And the answer is yes. <laughs> the, I know, I know a lot of people don't want to hear it. You know, they, you know, the X meets Y it's, it puts a lot of stress on them, but to be completely honest, in my opinion, you need a high concept pitch in order to finish writing a book in the first place. Now I want to define the high concept pitch a little bit. Um, it's really just a premise, just, it boils down to a premise, a premise that you can wrap your mind around easily, that you could conceive of easily. And my old boss, my first boss in publishing, well, not my first boss, but one of my old bosses used to run a packaging company. And a lot of those packaging companies obviously come up with high concept ideas. And so he used to have this banner behind his desk that said, what's the bleeping handle? And, uh, his wasn't actually bleeped out. It actually said the word, (laughs) but he, you know, and the question really is, is what's the idea I can get a handle on? So what's the bleeping handle is essentially what that meant. So I know a lot of people get stressed out about the high concept idea because, you know, there's a lot of pressure to be quote commercial, which we'll get to commercial later in the podcast. Um, but is is a is a high concept pitch necessary? Yes. Is the X meets Y formula necessary? No. So uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts you want to jump in with Kelly so far, or um, I would say the high concept pitch is essentially your elevator pitch. If you're stuck in the elevator with an agent or an editor and you only have one floor to get them to understand the gist of your project, that's the high concept pitch. It's the hook. It's the premise, as JJ said. It's the thing that you really want to distill your novel down into the pure essence so that you can captivate and hook your audience or your reader or your the person whose attention you have at that moment. Um, you want to try to hook them as simply as possible in as few words as possible. Yeah. The handle is something that you're going to be able to pass from person to person pretty easily. So the reason I say having a high concept pitch is necessary is because when I was an editor and I got a book and on submission and you know, it could be extremely well written and thoughtful, but if I went to my editorial board and was like, so this book is about two girls and 
it, it takes place at two different points in their lives and they, you know, it's about their friendship. I'm already bored. See what I mean? Yeah. You <laughs> want a very quick pitch. So if I were to try and pitch that book, we'll say it's the same hypothetical book. I'd say it's, um, like Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along, and it's a story of a friendship between two girls told in backwards directions. One's going forward, the other one's going backward. So that's a high-concept pitch. Uh, it's The X meets Y formula is often put in there because it's a shortcut for people, again, to get their minds around. The, mm-hmm. So that that's why you need one. It doesn't necessarily mean that your book has to be, quote, commercial it just means that your idea, your book needs to have a premise that can be easily distilled into a very very simple pitch now x meets y i don't like this formula for a couple of reasons because uh most people get it wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> most people think or most people start with this X meets Y and then start writing. Now, I don't think that this is necessarily always a bad thing to do, but if someone says, you know, write me X-Men meets, I don't know, I'm trying to think of another, X-Men meets (laughs) (laughs) Scooby-Doo. I don't know. Those are two different properties, you know, and then you sit down and you try and write a book based on the X meets Y, just based on this idea that it's easy to get your mind around and easy to sell, in my opinion, I don't think that's the right way to go about writing anything. Now, of course, I'm an inside-out writer, so I always start generally with a character and sort of grow a book from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if even if you don't start with a premise, you can always find one. Mm-hmm. You can always end up distilling your book down to a high-concept pitch. So... Let's see if we can think of a, a couple of examples for high concept pitches. So I just read um, earlier this week, I just read Everything, Everything. Mm. And the high concept pitch for that book is a girl who is allergic to everything and can't leave her house falls in love with the boy next door. Mm-hmm. There you have it. One yeah, sentence. You know everything you need to know for the most part about that story just from that one high concept pitch. Because you have the conflict that's inherently there. A a girl who's sick and can't go outside falls in love with someone who's outside. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so they can't ever, you know, actually meet, physically meet or anything like that. So the high concept pitch does distill something down to basically a single sentence, maybe one or two sentences. The fewer words you can get your pitch down to, the better it is. And the easier it is for your agent to pitch it to an editor. And honestly, the easier it is for you to query an agent, period. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I want to say, too, you know, we're, we're telling you that everyone needs a high-concept pitch, that you need to be able to distill your book down to the essential premise. And I do believe that that is true. But I can understand if that's somewhat panic inducing. If you feel like, Oh my God, there's so much going on in my book. How can I possibly just narrow it down to this one thing? There's no way that one sentence can encompass everything in the book. Well, that's probably true. And that's also probably fine. Your high concept pitch doesn't have to tell you every last detail and nuance about your story. What it has to tell you is 
the essential core. Mm -hmm. That is the thing that needs to be communicated. It's okay if, you know, there are certain side plots or characters or themes that aren't encompassed in your high concept pitch because that's why people want to read the book. Otherwise, we'd just go around telling each other high concept pitches all the time and that would be satisfying, but it isn't. <laughs> you you want to read the manifestation of that high concept pitch and, you know, that's where all that other stuff comes in. Um, so don't panic if it seems like an insurmountable task to you. You're not supposed to be able to fit every last detail into just one sentence. You really want to think about it as just finding the most important essence of your story and bringing that forward. Yeah. And by necessity, pitching anything, selling anything is going to be reductive. You're always going to reduce whatever it is you're selling, be it a book or a product or something else to the simplest or lowest common denominator that you can find. So don't worry if, you know, your book is encompasses a lot of things that will not fit into just one sentence. Just pick one, pick the main one, pick or pick the most interesting hooky one, pick something and pitch it. Because the other thing about high concept pitches is that it can actually change depending on who you're pitching it to, Mm -hmm. depending on who the audience is. You know, if I were to pitch everything, everything, because because I also read that book. If I were to pitch everything, everything to a reader of issues, you know, who, who kind of like the sort of tearjerker types of things, I'd say oh, it's a forbidden romance because she can't go, you know, outside to see the boy that she's fallen in love with. Or if you're more interested in a family story, then you can sort of say it's, you know, about a mother and daughter and, you know, the lengths that we go to to keep our loved ones close. You know, those are it all de- kind of it would kind of depend on who i was pitching the book to so it kind of requires you to know the audience and to know which parts of your book to bring forward to pitch to that audience and but generally the high con- concept pitch as we talk about it in publishing is the most commercial idea mm-hmm. so i do want to talk a little bit about this idea of a commercial concept, because in my opinion, commercial concepts don't really exist. <laughs> um, it's, it's how it's written. It's a style, it's a style and not an idea. So commercial versus literary is a false dichotomy. At least it is to me because you can actually have the same high concept pitch, but have one book be commercial and the other one be considered literary. Now I'm going to give you two examples. The books Life as We Knew It by Beth Pfeffer and The Age of Miracles actually have, when you distill it down, the same pitch. It's about a young girl who is witnessing how her world is changing and falling apart and going to pieces after something happens to the gravitational shift of the earth. The Age of Miracles uh, by Karen Thompson Walker is considered literary. It's whereas Life as We Knew It by Susan Beth Pfeffer is considered commercial. And it's simply because the pacing in one is slower and the pacing in the other one is quicker. 
the you, one pays, you know, Susan Beth Pfeffer's book is much more immediate in terms of voice because it's a told from a diary format. So it's very close to her emotions and what she's feeling and what happens. And it's kind of also, there's a love story, of course, a love story as the world is ending, which, you know, pretty, pretty hooky idea. And the age of miracles is much more contemplative and it's less immediate because one, the protagonist is a little bit younger. She's a young girl and two, the narrator sort of skims over the adults as well. So you kind of a little bit at a remove things unfold a little bit slowly. There's a bit more rumination about the nature of life and death and aging, uh, knowing that some people won't be able to, etc. So it's essentially the same idea, but written in two different ways. So this whole commercial versus literary sometimes drives me a little bit crazy <laughs> because, well, I was like, well, how's it written? That's really the question. How is it written? That determines whether or not something is pushed as a commercial book or a literary book. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting distinction because until speaking to you about it, I don't know that I would have thought about it in those terms. You know, we hear so much about commercial and literary and it never occurred to me to think of them so much as writing styles, so much as, you know, like a marketing sort of a concept. Um, but I actually agree with you now that I've heard you talk about that and given it some thought, I really do think that those distinctions are about writing styles, about the way that the author presents the story and tells the story to you. Um, and you know, marketing can take advantage of those things. Um, but I thought that was really interesting and insightful and something that I myself wouldn't have thought of. I mean, it's sort of, you know, you've, you often think of genre in particular, mm -hmm. we'll say science fiction and fantasy is generally not thought of as being particularly literary, but there are plenty of science fiction and fantasy novels that are indeed very literary. Mm -hmm. Anything by Margaret Atwood is yes definitely a book with a science fiction premise or and generally most of them are science fiction premises but written in a very literary manner mm -hmm. never the let sparrow. me go oh yes the sparrow by i think it's mary dura i think it's mary Dariah russell russell mm -hmm. yeah this is a a book about alien contact and space travel and religion um, and it's a very literary novel. Very beautiful. I highly recommend this book, you guys. It's really excellent. So good. Or, oh, the other one I was going to bring up was Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, mm -hmm. which is about clones. Oh. Um, yeah, it's it's about clones, but it's also considered a literary novel. Mm -hmm. So Well, even yeah. Station Eleven by Emily St. John mm -hmm. Mandel that mm -hmm. recently came out is, you know, that post-apocalyptic sort of science fiction-y. And the interesting thing about Emily St. John Mandel, so that Station Eleven is her first genre book because mm -hmm. she's written, I think, two books previously, and they were sort of more in the, quote, literary vein. I mean, her writing style hasn't changed from book to book, but the first two were sort of more contemporary issues, whereas... Station Eleven was more, much more of a science fiction premise. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a style and not a category the way like romance is, the way young adult is, the way 
mysteries are. I mean, um, they're definitely literary mysteries. I think you could probably consider the historian <laughs> by well, Elizabeth Kostova. Oh, yeah. I'd say that's a literary mystery. Uh, anything by you said? I, I don't know. I guess she kind of straddles the line for me, but um, I think Sophie Hanna writes really lyrical, beautiful mysteries that are very disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> but her prose is is not what I typically think of as prose in that genre. You know, she I, she used to write poetry, and so her command of language is really. Um, excellent. She does beautiful and interesting things um, with her prose. And so whenever I'm reading one of her mysteries, it always feels more literary to me because of the writing style. And often the literary mysteries are slower paced as well. It, a mm-hmm. lot of it is pacing because if you write something in a commercial style, you're going to the writing is going to be utilitarian and get you from scene to scene, action to action. And this isn't bad by any means, but that's, you know, faster paced books tend to, to move at a certain sort of speed, whereas literary novels tend to linger on emotions, on thoughts, on people's ruminations. You know, they tend to linger on characters where they talk to each other and reveal things about each other, about the world they live in. So it, it is really a style, but you can have a high concept pitch and write it in a commercial way or write it in a literary way. So I do want to emphasize that having a high commercial pitch does not mean you need to have a commercial idea (laughs) because you can actually find a commercial idea in pretty much any book that has ever been written. Now, almost any book. I mean, granted, Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, I don't read a lot of what is considered adult literary. So... And many of those I don't think have high concept pitches at all. <laughs> That's why I don't read them. <laughs> yeah, those are much more about the inner workings of a character or a group of characters. Um, but even then, I think some of them, I think, you know, again, I think when you lean more toward that literary genre, like magical realism sort of adult novels or not adult, but literary contemporary novels. But in general, I think you're right. Most, most of what we'd classify as literary fiction doesn't have a super commercial premise. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of examples off the top of my head. Well, we'll, t- we'll take Jonathan Franzen, everybody's favorite whipping boy in publishing, but Jonathan Franzen is generally considered a literary writer, but the premises of his books, I wouldn't say are particularly compelling, particularly compelling. Uh, the corrections is about a dysfunctional Midwestern family. And it is actually Mm -hmm. my favorite of his books, even though I hate everybody in it. I did find it incredibly compelling to read freedom is a big bloated mess. I'm trying to trying to figure out how to tell you guys what freedom's about. I mean, he is a good writer. I'm not going to deny that. He is a very, very good writer, and he had, makes some incredibly astute and interesting observations about the world. But freedom doesn't actually have a core premise or an mm. idea or a plot 
or even a main character. Uh, I'm really selling this book to you. <laughs> I know. I was like, well, what does it have then? Jonathan Franzen's name. There you go. Sometimes that's all you need. I mean, John Green can pretty much be like, this is my next book. Well, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, the high concept pitch actually could just be your name. If you're, <laughs> if you're I'm John Nicole. Green and I wrote a book. <laughs> exactly. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. I mean, J.K. Rowling can do the same thing. It's like, I'm J.K. Rowling. Next book. I mean, yeah, I mean, although a lot of her books are kind of hard to distill down to a core idea, um, a high concept pitch or, a, so, you know, it's again, this high concept pitch isn't totally necessary and it certainly doesn't have to be a, a quote commercial idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but having one is definitely recommended because it's easy to sell, not just to an, an acquisitions board, but to your friends even. Like, if I were to try and recommend Freedom to you guys, which I just did, I did a terrible job of it because I couldn't find the high concept pitch to give to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so let's talk about, let's, let's come back to this whole X meets Y idea and why I don't really like it and why in most cases it doesn't work because most people pick the easiest thing. So what I used to see a lot when I was working at an, in, at a literary agency and I was going through the slush was like, this is Harry Potter meets Twilight. And I would sit there and I'd be like, I don't know what that book is. Someone explain to me what Harry Potter meets Twilight is, please. Yeah. It's meaningless. Because what aspects of Harry Potter and what aspects of Twilight and what, you know, they're they're so fundamentally different, but not in a way that there's a clear through line to each of them. You know, you you can't Mm -hmm. take these two disparate things and put them next to each other and understand how that creates a story. Yeah, and... It, it's, it's any, any sort of really huge property. So any sort of runaway success, Harry Potter, Twilight, The Hunger Games, John Green, anything. These are meaningless concepts now because they're so big. They're big because they're big, essentially. They're, you know, I think The Hunger Games in particular is extremely high concept pitch, which is, children battle each other to the death on reality television. Mm-hmm. Which is also the pitch of Battle Royale. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is a Japanese novel. Um, but it, and a movie. But the hunger, nowadays when people say a book is blank meets the Hunger Games, it's kind of hard to tell what they're reaching for. Is it the dystopian setting? Mm-hmm. Is it the battling each other to the death? Is it the reality TV aspect of it? What aspect of the Hunger Games is what you're trying to compare it to, essentially? Mm-hmm. Because it's just such a big phenomenon now that it kind of means something different to everyone. And the same thing with Twilight. When you say something meets Twilight, and you're like, is it the vampires? Is it right? Is it the love, love story? story? <laughs> is it you know what? What? Yeah. 
Is it the four books of blue balls that everyone had to suffer <laughs> to get to the end? Like what, what is, what is it about twilight that you're trying to compare your book to? And of course we, we don't need to speak about Harry Potter. Everybody knows about Harry Potter. Is it the magic? Is it the chosen one? Is, you know, is it the boarding school? What is it yeah. about Harry Potter that you're trying to compare your book to? And in fact, if, if, you know, there's always a better option if you're going to do the X meets Y. Try to get as specific and as narrow as you possibly can with the X meets Y formula. So, for example, my book, which I talked about before, Winter Song, I pitched as Labyrinth meets Amadeus. I picked Labyrinth because it's essentially a retelling <laughs> of that. The Golden King steals the main the main character's sister, and she has to go rescue her sister from his clutches. But I also picked Amadeus because the main character is a composer and a musician and struggles a lot with feelings of inadequacy and her her own artistic talent, much the way Salieri does in that movie. So, but you know, you kind of distill basically the two images that you take away from a pitch like Labyrinth meets Amadeus is the Goblin King and music, which is essentially what my book is. So the the narrower the the pitch, the more successful you are. I mean, we actually talked about this in comp books when we talked about having comp titles for your book. It's very much the same thing. You don't want to compare your book to Harry Potter, Twilight, or The Hunger Games because those are essentially meaningless comps. So the, the more specific you can get, the more narrow you can get, the better it is. So, you know, I'm trying to think of... You know, we had a couple of examples of high concept pitches and, you know, why they work. We could play the game of guess that book or TV show or movie, I suppose. So the first one is the children of Greek gods go to summer camp. Percy Jackson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taming of the Shrew, where Katrina is a 90s riot girl. 10 Things I Hate About You and It's Amazing. <laughs> Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice as told by a neurotic British woman via her diary. <laughs> British Jones's British Jones's wow. Bridget <laughs> Jones's diary. <laughs> so these are all high concept pitches because we've been able to distill these down to basically a sentence. Mm-hmm. And what is appealing about each of these books or each of these movies in the case of some of them. So I hope that illuminates the whole X meets Y high concept idea because yes, you absolutely need one. Mm-hmm. You can't just pitch your book. You can't query your book to your agent by saying, so it's got all these elements and it's about this and it talks about this theme. It doesn't work. Right. No, that is never, no. Talking about, you know, my book addresses themes of, family and forbidden love and deep isolation and you know no but that doesn't what does that mean that doesn't mean anything that's not what your story is you have to get down to the essence of your story and also basically you just told me what your book is about but you didn't show me what your book was by saying it's about this well what 
is what's specific about your book that makes it about that. Mm-hmm. You know, so you see a lot of, you know, if you've worked in a literary agency, it was both Kelly and I have, you see a lot of these queries come in that just very generic and vague and non-specific because they haven't, the writer has not yet figured out how to distill the book down into a tight, high concept pitch and query. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that the book is bad and it doesn't mean that the book isn't commercial. It's no. just that they have to figure out how to do that first. <laughs> well, querying is an art form and you can be an excellent novelist and be terrible at writing queries. And yeah. so, I mean, because I have read in my career some horrific queries that are awful and then later been able to read the book that was being queried at the time and the book is great but that writer didn't know how to pitch that book successfully in a query and having a high concept pitch is a really important part of having a successful query and and I agree that writing a query or a copy of any kind is a certain skill that not it, it's a it's a totally different skill from writing a novel. Period. And I happen to like writing copy. I happen to think I'm pretty good at writing copy, actually. Um, you know, it's as I said before, pitches like these are by design reductive. They have to be. They have to be distilled to the simplest element in order to be easy to sell and in order for people to get their minds around quickly. So that's a different skill because Mm -hmm. writing a novel requires you to expand everything, to fill everything out, to breathe life into it. Whereas writing copy, writing queries, coming up with these pitches requires you to basically just extract the living heart out of it without touching everything else. Right. Which requires a lot of specificity. You have to be specific because you might have the impulse to go really broad because thinking that, well, the more general or broad that I am, the more mass appeal I'll have and I'll reach more people that way. When actually it, it seems to have the opposite effect. Really broad or general things don't interest anyone because no one connects to it. You want to get really specific. You want to find the comps or the concepts that closely connect to your work in unique and specific ways that make sense, that someone can see and understand immediately and latch on to. So I'm going to get all literary and like pretentious on you guys, but there is a term, synecdoche. And that's when a part is used to represent the whole. So like you can say it, this is an an arm of the Navy or an arm of the army, you know, something like that where you, the hand represents a full body or represents a person. So a part that represents the whole is essentially what you have to do when you are querying, when you're coming up with a high concept pitch, when you're writing copy, when you're pitching your book, you have to find a part of your book that represents the whole of your book to find as few words as possible that can evoke the whole. And 
as as we said before, this is a totally different skill from writing a book. But it's also something you can practice. You know, there are tips that we can give you. And I wrote up a post about how to write copy on pub crawl, which I can link to. But, you know, you, you, you want to focus on very specific things, specific situations, specific actions, specific, you know, the tighter you get, the easy, the, the better grip on the handle you can have. So I think that more or less covers the high concept pitch, unless you have anything else to add, Kelly. I think that's just about everything. Yeah, I mean, we can leave a couple of high concept pitch examples, some of the X meets Y, some make maybe a simple one line or two um, to kind of give you an idea. But pretty much all books can be distilled down to a high concept pitch if you if you think about it. And to be completely honest, once you find the trick of it, it gets easier. Mm-hmm. So... All right, we can move on to our next segments then. So what are you reading? I just finished up a few books this week, actually. Um, I read Everything, Everything by Nicola Yoon, which I mentioned earlier, which I really enjoyed. I read uh, Moon Called by Patricia Briggs on the recommendation of a friend of mine, and it is a paranormal mystery romance and I don't generally read any of those things. I don't read <laughs> a lot of um, I don't read a lot of paranormal or mysteries or romances. But this was all three, and I really enjoyed it. Highly, highly, highly enjoyed it. I actually don't care at all one way or the other about the various romantic interests. Um, they were not the focus of the book. They were just kind of on the side. And I don't have a preference between either one and don't really care what happens. I loved the protagonist. She was <laughs> fantastic. She was capable and complex and interesting and smart. And uh, I just really loved her. And so I don't even really care who she ends up with eventually. I just want to read more books about her doing stuff. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I really um, loved that one, too. And then I thought there was a third one, but I just pulled up my Goodreads, and perhaps it was only two. I did finish The Wrath and the Dawn, which I think at our last podcast I'd mentioned that I had begun. Um, and so I finished that. And right now I'm waiting for my holds to come through on the library. I don't have anything new this second so unfortunately when this podcast is over i'm not gonna have anything to read before i go to bed tonight <laughs> but oh, i have some pity. things yeah i have some things waiting for me i'm waiting for the witches um which you've talked about before uh that which, is on you guys my i have to list. confess i'm still working my way through it i'm almost done but <laughs> i'm still working my way through that you guys <laughs> Someday, someday you'll be done. You'll see it. Well, maybe not if you're if you're getting an ebook of it. But if you see a physical copy of the book, it's like a brick. It is. Is it huge. really? It is really long. Wow. So and it, like I said, it is very good. But you know, it is a work of nonfiction, so it's not quite the same thing as like sinking into mm-hmm. uh, a work of fiction. Yeah. Um. But so, if you're still working on that, what else are you reading? Uh, well, like you, I also finished Everything, Everything, which I really enjoyed. I I just loved the romance between 
the two characters and there are like I am conversations and emails and the I am uh, killed me. They killed so me. Pitch perfect and mm-hmm. like they're just so spot on. They're great. Um I also I don't know if I mentioned this, but I had started Truth Witch by Susan Denard, who obviously is a was a pub crawl member and Passenger by Alexander Bracken. And I finished those, really enjoyed them as clearly other people have because they're both on the New York Times bestseller list so congratulations to them that's wonderful uh, yeah no I, I I highly highly enjoyed them those uh, are what I call one sitting books you sit down and just mm-hmm. read it in one sitting and um, I also finished Walk on Earth a Stranger which mm-hmm. I had started before actually before the end of the year and just hadn't gotten around to finishing it but I really enjoyed that one as well um part of it is a little bit selfish and personal because my own family came to california for the gold rush (laughs) so there's like a little bit of that oh this is what it must have been like for you know one side of my family which is pretty cool Mm -hmm. um and i also reread two books one was bitter blue by christine kishore which I love. I think having reread this, I think this is, Bitter Blue is actually now my favorite of the Christian Kishore books. For a while, it was Fire, um, but I think Bitter Blue. There's something just really, really sad and moving about the sort of grief and the healing process mm-hmm. that takes place in that book. Um, it's very long and I, and I realize not a lot happens in bitter blue, but I think emotionally it's the one that moves me the most. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, I finished rereading that and I also reread a book called star crossed by Elizabeth C. Bunce. She wrote a really excellent retelling of Rumpelstiltskin years, uh, like maybe in 2008 that I really, really enjoyed. And she had written, a sort of high fantasy novel about a thief and a forger. Um, and I remembered enjoying that. And I'm also doing a little bit of research for a project that I'm writing uh, that involves intrigues and twisty plots. So I read both Bitter Blue and Starcrossed for that. So mm-hmm. I, I got a lot of reading in. I didn't get a lot of writing in, but I got a lot of reading in anyway. <laughs> reading is research. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So then what are you working on? What am I working on? So I am, I am trying to figure out how to tell this story that I've been trying to tell, which I know I've talked about on this podcast before. Um, I'm still struggling and not making tons of headway. Sometimes when I feel you know, that I'm struggling against it. I go back to my nano project and I get excited about that for a second, but really I'm just kind of waffling between the two and I need, I know I want to work on this one, this old one that I'm coming back to and not my nano project. I know that's what I want to do and I need to just figure out how to do it. I I need to figure out what kind of a story I want it to be and probably start doing my research in that sense of reading more books that have that tone and that kind of storytelling. Um, I need to figure out 
what the plot is because <laughs> I don't know what that is. I do have a high concept pitch. <laughs> I I do have one of those, but that's just about the only thing that I have. And kind of going back to what we were saying before, it's hard to write from a high concept pitch. <laughs> it's much easier. Yeah, it's much, much easier when you you know, have a story and then you pull your high concept pitch out of that. But when all you have is a high concept pitch and you try to create something out of that, that's really difficult because by nature, a high concept pitch is completely distilled into almost, you know, the barest possible bones. So you have a lot of filling in to do. (laughs) Um, So that is what I'm struggling with at the moment or working on, I guess. Mm. Yeah, so I think I told you last time, Kelly, but I was doubting the voice of my middle grade. <laughs> I just, I had kind of reread it and then I was just like, no, it's wrong. It's all wrong. Everything is wrong. Um, so I'm kind of at a, not at a crisis point, but I think I need to let that one rest. Because mm-hmm. I keep going back and forth on, I think the voice is right. And then I think the voice is all wrong. The voice is right. (laughs) I really do truly believe that. I have read this one in several incarnations. um, And uh, I I think the voice is spot on 100%. But I can understand your struggles with it and the reasons that you're having concerns or doubts. Um, I hope you get over them. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think I'm just going to let it rest. Yeah. And, you know, when I, cause I, I do this with all of my writing. It's not just my middle grade. I have periods of intense doubt about what I've written. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm waiting for that swing to come back around again for winter song. Cause all throughout my revision process, like I got it back and was like, why on earth did anyone buy this book? It's terrible. Mm. Um, <laughs> God, maybe I can, maybe if I have enough time, I can rewrite the whole thing from top to bottom, which of course is stupid, but you know, I have these intense periods of, I hate everything I've written. It's terrible. I can do better. Or, eh, I actually like this. You know, it kind of vacillates between those two extremes. Mm-hmm. So I'm letting that rest. And right now I'm sort of in the kind of fallow period where I'm sort of collecting and growing and planting these ideas for my next adult project, because, uh, that is my option with my publisher is my next adult work. And for a long time, I was sort of like, I have no idea what that's going to be because at least I thought all of my sort of future projects were all going to be either middle grade or YA. But then I sort of, something came to me and just a whole bunch of disparate elements that had been sort of floating around all these story seeds that I'd mentioned and it started to kind of distill itself into a story. So now I have a pretty good idea of the characters and the setting and the plot sort of, sort of, I've got half a plot. Half a plot um, is better than no plot. (laughs) I mean, half a plot is basically because it's a retelling (laughs) <laughs> okay, you guys, I steal all of my plots from something else. I have to start doing that. I, I highly recommend it. It makes things a lot easier. 
Um, but obviously I, I don't want it to be straight retelling. And in fact, it, it really isn't a straight retelling, but that's sort of my inspiration point for the plot. And so now mm-hmm. I'm kind of gathering, researching other bits of, of information. Cause this one is a bit more intrigue y Mm-hmm. Uh, than my previous book, which is sort of a straight, straight up coming of age story, but this is more political, I think. So I'm kind of reading books that are about intrigues and kind of a little bit twisty or mysterious and have secrets and things like that. So I'm mm-hmm. kind of that's that's I'm in that period where I'm reading a lot of books that put me in that mood. So that's where I am. Yes. And yeah, do you have any off menu recommendations this week? I don't think so. No, the only thing that I, I like, I said I've gotten back into reading, so that's been my main thing. I um, we've started watching Top Chef again, which <laughs> my husband and I love to do. Any reality cooking TV show, I'm here for it. Um, but yeah, no, nothing, nothing new going on lately. What about you? So I started Life is Strange. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Um, it took a couple of starts and stops because, um, initially, like I was like, oh, I'm going to play it on my Mac mm-hmm. until I realized it's not available on a Mac. You can right. only play it on a PC. And I was like, gosh, darn it. Because I, I know you had mentioned that it was dark and I just thought, oh, it'd be because, uh, Mark has a gaming computer in his office. It's a desktop and it's a gaming computer. And I thought it'd be great if like, if he's playing League of Legends, I can just be in his office with him playing Life is Strange at the same time. Except it, mm-hmm. I can't play it on a Mac. So I have to go downstairs to our PS3 um, to, to start playing. But he went out with uh, some of his friends in Greensboro um, and uh, some of his co-residents uh, like Saturday night. And I was like, this is it. I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm going to download Life is Strange, order Chinese food and play. Yes! <laughs> I want and nothing more than to be sitting next to you on the couch, like <laughs> creepily in your face while you play this game. Um, yeah, it's, I really, I really am enjoying it so far and I am holding off and like preventing myself from Googling this because yeah, I'm like don't. so tempted to be like, okay, how does, <laughs> and it's, it's kind of interesting because you know, as, as you had mentioned, Kelly, that, you know, your choices have all these repercussions. So that actually makes me not try and game the game, if that makes Mm. sense, but I'm sort of playing it, what I would consider conservatively. Mm -hmm. Like I'm kind of making the middle of the road choices or the choices that I think the game will expect me to play, you know, a little bit of, there's a little bit of that. So I'm kind of doing it that way, but I almost want to play it again. I'm not even done, but I'm almost like, like, I'm going to play this. I'm going to play this one kind of conservatively, like all the way to the end. And then I'm going to start it again and just do all sorts of crazy choices just to Mm -hmm. see what happens. Um, but I love it. I mean, I love the friendship between Max and Chloe and it just, I love anything that's about girl friendships and about girls in Mm -hmm. general, you know, obviously. So, but I, I am thoroughly enjoying it. And then, um, yeah, I played two episodes this past weekend and then put it aside. So I'm waiting for this weekend again. We're supposed to get a snow, snowy weekend. So I'm like, yeah, this Ooh. sounds great. You are coming up on all the really crazy stuff now. Because I think in episodes one and two, there's like some things where you're like, oh, that was intense. But it starts to get really. <laughs> 
the dark stuff is coming. I know that you're hanging in there for the dark things and I hope I haven't overpromised it, but it's, it's pretty, it's pretty dark. I mean, it is just kind of messed up to begin with. Just yeah. as a concept, it's kind of just messed up, which I love. Like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I love that. But, uh, you know, you're like, it's, it's dark. And I was like, yeah, I, I mean, it's not like, dark dark yet but i yeah i can see I, mm-hmm. it's pretty like, twisted it is pretty twisted i mean like from the first episode even it's pretty twisted so <laughs> was i was like oh oh this is where the game's taking me oh interesting because uh, i knew nothing about it like i didn't google it i just mm-hmm. took it on your recommendation i looked for it to like buy essentially but i didn't i like restrained myself mm-hmm. from looking up anything about it so i'm just totally going into it fresh but i'm yeah. i'm really enjoying it especially as as i had mentioned before i'm not a gamer so this is somewhat of a surprise to me because mm-hmm. i lose interest in games very quickly like really yeah. quickly yeah i i think that there's really I, the thing that i like about this i've read um you know now i was like you in that when i was playing the game i was really i didn't google anything i didn't want you know, any spoilers or to find out anything that happened or possible repercussions of choices. And so I really stayed away from everything. But the second I finished, I just started looking up everything (laughs) on it because I couldn't get enough of it. Um, And, you know, some of the reviews have called it like a playable indie movie. And I feel Hmm. like that really, in a way, really feels like what it is. It feels like there's a story and it's very cinematic and that I'm propelling the story along because there's not much in terms of like gameplay. There's a few puzzles. I I can only remember two points in the game where there were puzzles or tasks that were really frustrating and tedious and I got really irritated. Um, but in general, the puzzles and the things that you have to do or find or whatever are pretty straightforward or easily guessable. And that's not the point. You know, the point isn't to like to play this game because you're going to solve all these puzzles. The point is to have these conversations and make these choices and see where this story goes. And so in that sense, in terms of video games, it's really unlike anything else that I've ever played. Yeah. I guess it's kind of closer to a choose your own adventure Mm -hmm. book, which I, I also really loved when I was, when I was a kid. And it's also one of those things where if I like got to an outcome I didn't like, I'd be like, fine, I'm going to make a different choice and go back to it. <laughs> Which this game will let you do to a certain extent. Yes, to a certain extent. It's kind of, it's, um, it, I think it's, it's really, really interesting. Just games in general, because I'm not a gamer, I find just games interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, there's, I don't know if you guys have heard of this podcast called Radio Lab. Mm-hmm. But Radio Lab did an episode about this game called That Dragon Cancer. I don't know if you guys have heard of this either. Um, but essentially, and it totally blindsided me, you guys. Um, I, I like Radio Lab as a podcast. It's, um, you know, it, it, they tend to take sort of a pop science, they tend to take pop science stories and sort of go in depth about them. And they're really, really interesting. And I really like them. And uh, I was at work and I was listening to it and it, I started sobbing at my desk. I was totally blindsided by how it moved me, but it was really interesting because it's that dragon cancer is a video game about these parents who have us, who have a son with leukemia 
And it's not like other games in that you, you know, you have quests or you do this or you do that. I mean, there is some aspect of that to this game, but I was just listening to it and the interview was with the father. It's based on a a real story. Um, the father had a kid with leukemia and the genesis of the game actually was, you know, his son, I don't know if it's leukemia particularly, but he had some brain tumors and things that prevented him from drinking, from eating, Um, and he was, his son was just crying all night, you know, because he was extremely thirsty, couldn't drink, couldn't comfort his kid. And he's just helpless. He doesn't know what to do. Um, and to him, this put him in the mind of a video game. Like you have, you're facing an impossible choice. And so what do you do when you can't, when you come up to essentially a dead end in a video game, like, what do you do? And that's actually where he got the idea for the game, which I found very interesting. And so he goes on a little bit further to talk about the story, where it came from, you know, and sort of entwined with the real life and then subsequent death of his, of his son. And it is extremely interesting into interesting look into the mind of a game developer and what their creative process is. So I, that definitely intrigued me. And I mean, I don't think I have the emotional fortitude to play that dragon cancer. (laughs) I don't, I don't think I could deal with that. Like, but it did make me intrigued. (laughs) Well, that really reminds me of Jane McGonigal. I don't know if you know who she is. Um, she, is an author and um, a game developer, and she has done several amazing TED Talks. So if you really enjoy TED Talks, um, Jane McGonigal has done a couple of them that are really excellent. And one of them was about um, Super Better. And Super Better is a game that she invented that she also then wrote a book about later. But she... Um, had some kind of injury or illness. I can't remember what it is at this point, but something that was severely limiting and painful and may or may not have been chronic. Um, And she couldn't move or do anything or get out of her bed and was depressed and got to a point where she said to herself, okay, either I need to turn my life into a game that I can then play and level up and win, or Hmm. I'm just going to spiral down until I no longer want to live anymore. And so she created this game called Super Better. And the object of the game was to make her better. Now, it couldn't necessarily cure her illness, um, but she made these like attainable goals in a gameplay fashion and gave herself enemies and like all these rules for how her mana could be deducted or gained or all of this (laughs) stuff and created this like complex game for herself to play in her mind when she was bedridden to like help her, you know, overcome her depression and some other things. And it worked. And then she wrote a book about it. There's an app for it now, um, encouraging other people to play and you can use it to apply to anything that you want 
and it gives you these, you know, these outlines of rules and how to tailor it to your specific situation. But the basic concept is that you can trick your mind into treating things like a game and that when you play games, you know, whether they're board games or video games or other kinds of games, it unlocks a certain type of thinking in your brain and that games help people work collaboratively with other people. And, you know, her TED Talks on on games and gaming and why humans play games are really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, we we play board games, like Mark and I play board games. Um, mm-hmm. I do like kind of cooperative board games. Um, for a while, we've been playing Arkham Asylum, which is like 20 million hours to play. But <laughs> I mean, I do actually enjoy board games. And it's funny that I don't really like video games because the concept really should be the same. But for some reason for me, video games just don't mm-hmm. hold my interest. And maybe because it is often just me and the computer or the system as opposed to me with a group of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a little bit more of a social aspect when it comes to board games, I think, um, than, than video games. But it, yeah, that, that Radio Lab episode definitely made me much more intrigued about games in general. Um, and my friends who play kind of, it helps me understand, I guess, a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So I think that's it for this week. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Awesome. That was pretty quick. Hope I we didn't confuse you two guys too much about the high concept or discourage anyone. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know, as we'd mentioned, it is extremely stressful uh, topic for a lot of people and a lot of writers. Um, but when we say you need a high concept pitch, really, what you need to do is be able to find a high concept pitch in what you've written, mm-hmm. and it's there. It's there. It's definitely there. You wouldn't have been able to finish a book otherwise. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about critique groups. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. Yep. And if you want more pub crawl goodness, you can always go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website at sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. to give any thoughts in that exactly <laughs> bloopers <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like well let me think about it now um <laughs>